Hello and welcome to this Christmas edition of the Aspects of History podcast. My name's Oliver Webb Carter, I'm the editor and your host, and today I'm giving you my top 10 historical Christmas events. If you can subscribe, I'd be hugely grateful, but let's just kick off without further ado. At number 10, the Treaty of Ghent to end the War of 1812 is signed in 1814. To the eagle-eyed among you and Americans, you will know that this treaty was in fact signed on Christmas Eve of 1814. But I thought that after my chat with Nicholas Geyer early on in the year, when we discussed this conflict, I'd have to include it. For those of you not familiar, this war was very much for the British in the background as we fought the more serious threat of Napoleon, the Corsican ogre. Apologies to my French listeners. For the Americans, this war, in part due to unhappiness at the Royal Navy's pressing of American sailors into their ranks, arguing their nationality remained British, was a huge part in building US national identity. The British, if they can even remember it, will know the White House was burned by our victorious army in Washington under General Robert Ross. Now, Ross was clearly a wonderful chap, because despite being urged to burn the property of private citizens, he refused so observing the standards of war at the time. I'm sure my American listeners will appreciate his conduct during the capture of Washington. When the Treaty of Ghent was signed two years later, in 1814, it took many weeks for the news to make it back to America. In that time, the Americans, despite having signed the treaty, attacked British troops at New Orleans in January 1815, winning a glorious victory under future President Andrew Jackson, so making up for their earlier White House episode. The war itself was inconclusive, as American attempts at invading Canada ended in failure. But my recommended book is indeed The Hated Cage by Nicholas Guyot. At number 9, 1991, Mikhail Gorbachev resigns. In December 1991, in the wake of hyperinflation and the disintegration of a once mighty empire, as we've all heard from authors such as Roger Morehouse and more recently Ian McGregor, the Soviet Union was imploding. Earlier that year, Premier Gorbachev had devolved government from the Central Committee in Moscow to each republic. That suggests Gorbachev was the man in power in Russia. However, it was rival Boris Yeltsin who was the real power behind the throne. On the 25th of December, after two days of negotiations, during which sensitive documents were handed to the new leader, which included, interestingly, the Nazi-Soviet non-aggression pact papers, Gorbachev formally resigned. The event was filmed though few Soviets watched it. And in this moment, the world understood the Soviet Union was over for good. Indeed, Yeltsin had prematurely replaced the Soviet flag on the Kremlin with the Russian flag. In Russia, Gorbachev, who died this year, is considered a disaster. But during these final few days, he surrounded himself with US media, which helped to construct a positive reputation in the West. With the rise and now dominance of Putin, were we right? I don't think so. Book recommendation is Collapse by Vladislav Zubok. At number 8, 1868, President Andrew Johnson's Confederate Pardon. On the 25th of December, 1868, President Andrew Johnson issued his Christmas amnesty, which pardoned Confederates from any convictions of treason against the Union. He had already issued amnesties that had ensured most of those serving in the Confederate Army were free from prosecution, but it was his Christmas amnesty that saved senior rebel leaders such as the Confederate President Jefferson Davis. His amnesty was controversial even then. 
And when one considers the fact that many southern Southerners refused to accept they had rebelled at all, the, in my view, somewhat disingenuous argument that it had always been over the state's right to secede, could this have been a clear statement that the rebellion's leaders had been punished appropriately? After all, when one hears the phrase, history is written by the victors, is that true of the American Civil War? Book to read, The Trial of President Andrew Johnson and the Fight for Lincoln's Legacy by David O. Stewart. Number seven, James II flees England and lands in France in 1688. Now, if I were to list the number of bad English kings, I'd be here till Easter. But perhaps one with the strongest claim to the weakest king is James II. Younger brother to Charles II and son to another contender for worst king, Charles I, he was a disaster from the moment he took the throne. A Catholic, in a country that had a strong hatred for Catholics, he flaunted his religion and inherited his father's taste for the divine right of kings. His military reforms, which saw a standing army in peacetime, was unpopular, and his appointment of Catholic officers even more so. I haven't even mentioned his involvement in the slave trade yet. In 1688, his son James was born. Initial joy at an heir was tempered by the fact that he was born and raised Catholic, prompting fears of a Catholic dynasty ruling England. To make matters worse, James prosecuted Anglican bishops for seditious libel, which was seen as a major attack on the Church of England. It was in November that Dutch, in the form of William, Prince of Orange, and Charles's son-in-law, invaded, a fact my Dutch stepfather-in-law takes great pleasure in reminding me. Many courtiers turned on him, including his daughter Anne, to go with Queen Mary, William III's wife, and John Churchill, later Duke of Marlborough. It was all over for James and he fled for France, having been allowed to escape by William, who wisely wanted his trouble well away. Landing in France on Christmas Day in 1688, he then began serious attempts to regain the throne that even today caused controversy. It was at the Battle of the Boyne on the 1st of July 1690 when William defeated James to end any chance of restoration, part two. But did ensure we would see Ireland as the location for Catholic and Protestant animosity which would continue with terrible and tragic results. The book to read is 1688, The First Modern Revolution by Stephen Pincus. At number six, William the Conqueror is crowned, 1066. From one revolution to another from Dutch supremacy to Norman. After the Battle of Hastings, which took place on the 14th of October, Harold Godwinson's body was disposed of, but no one knows where. There is a story that his dear mother begged William for his body, just like King Priam with Achilles at Troy. Unlike Achilles, though, William was unmoved, even with the offer of Harold's weight in gold. Battle Abbey was founded, along with a castle, on the side of the battleground. William then proceeded throughout parts of southern England along the Thames as Anglo-Saxons submitted to him. He then arrived in London and on Christmas Day, 1066, he was crowned at Westminster Abbey. In the aftermath, the remainder of England was subdued under the Norman yoke and the country would never be the same again. It was the last time for 622 years before another foreign invader would seize the crown from the incumbent. Book to read, The Huskal Chronicles by Paul Bernardi. Right, we're at the top five. To recap, at 10, Treaty of Ghent to end the War of 1812. Number nine is Mikhail Gorbachev's resignation. Number eight, President Andrew Johnson pardons Confederates. At number seven, James II flees to France. And number six, William the Conqueror is crowned. At number five, George Washington crosses the Delaware, 1776. Now, much as it pains me to mention this, it was a major Christmas Day event. 
If only dear George had stayed at home, opening presents and tucking into the goose, or that American import turkey. But no, he insisted on taking the fight to the innocent, freedom-loving British, or in this case, the Hessians, the German troops attached to the British as we dealt with those ungrateful Americans. In freezing conditions, George bravely made his troops row him across the river as vessels to the left and right of him struggled across the icy waters. You may be familiar with the painting by Emanuel Lutzer, which shows it rather well. I always thought, though, wouldn't it have been quite irritating as an American soldier, struggling to row an overladen boat, looking up at your leader to see him standing heroically, staring ahead, but not offering to help? Well, perhaps he did offer. But what did happen was the Hessians were defeated the next day at the Battle of Trenton. The colonies were triumphant, and at Yorktown, five years later, General Cornwallis surrendered, and the Americans have been regretting it since. Recommended book, George Washington by David O. Stewart. Number four, the coronation of Charlemagne, Holy Roman Emperor, in 800 AD. Charlemagne. Now, for many, Charlemagne's a remote figure, not only because he lived so long ago, but also because he ruled a homogenous group of states, many of which no longer exist. His coronation, a painting of which by Friedrich Klaubach, was our magazine cover in December 2021, took place in Rome on Christmas Day in 800. And some historians believe the coronation was sprung on him by the Pope, Leo III. It was certainly a result of Rome-Constantinople machinations. In Seabag's book, The World, Charlemagne is described as wearing a Roman toga. In gratitude of his coronation, Charlemagne did Leo a good turn by executing 300 of the conspirators who had tried to kill him. Charlemagne was part of the Carolinian dynasty and had united much of Western and Central Europe. He was king of the Franks, which made up much of Western France and the Low Countries and Northwest Germany. He's described as the father of Europe and is buried in the most beautiful cathedral in Aachen, massively stunning building and fitting for such a mammoth figure. Book to read, The World, A Family History by Simon Seabag Montefiore. At number three, Nikolai Ceausescu is executed, 1989. Now for me, this is a huge moment that took place in the aftermath of the fall of the Berlin Wall, which was just a month earlier in November, 89. In December, Ceausescu, seeing the revolution that had swept Eastern Europe on the 21st of December, decided what the Romanian people needed was a speech. He emerged onto the balcony overlooking what is now Revolution Square in Bucharest and began with one of the classic communist everything-is-going-swimmingly orations. Unfortunately for Ceausescu, the crowd hadn't got the memo. Within a few minutes, he was booed and forced back inside the building. From there, it was a quick descent as the army joined the protesters. Ceausescu and his wife, Elena, attempted to flee Romania but were captured and then faced a trial by military authorities on Christmas Eve. This was a classic of the genre, as the men responsible for delivering the pre-agreed verdict were being organised as the trial was in session. On Christmas Day 1989, the couple were led out to the firing squad, where they were shot. Friend of the show, Seabag, has described Elena Ceausescu screaming, You sons of bitches! just before the order was given to fire. I've put a link in for a very good Radio 4 documentary made by another friend of the show, Tessa Dunlop, on this very subject. Book to read... The Last Hundred Days by Patrick McGuinness. Number two, The Christmas Truce, 1914. Well, this had to be in there. In 1914, troops on the Western Front gathered in an impromptu and unsanctioned truce at various points along the front line. In a heartwarming and tragic episode, heartwarming because it displays the brotherhood of man and how there can be moments of beauty and horror, 
tragic because everyone resumed killing each other within hours. Opposing soldiers met and exchanged pleasantries, sang hymns and played football. England famously played out a 4-2 victory over Germany with a controversial goal proving crucial. Book to read, Peace on Earth, The Christmas Truce of 1914 by David Boyle. Number one, birth of the baby Jesus. Was he born on Christmas Day? Possibly. Was the nativity as we currently view it happen? Probably, possibly, historians argue. But we have to include baby Jesus as he's why we're all celebrating with our families and friends. You all know the story, so I won't bore you, except to wish everyone a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And I look forward to carrying on the podcast into 2023. From all of us here at Aspects of History, thank you and good night.